the outdoor festival, a staple during the summer months. And for me, a personal favorite is the big church festival, which brings some of the biggest Christian artists from across the world in order to come to West Sussex to worship and celebrate. Larger events can take place over a week and can be like a mini town forming. In the case of Glastonbury, for example, around 200,000 people attend to watch their favorite artist shake a leg and hopefully enjoy a little bit of sunshine. But how do we reliably power a temporary town with colossal infrastructure, including food vendors, sound systems, lighting rigs, and equipment? At the moment, combustion generators are used, often with diesel fuel, which spews out CO2 emissions and causes a fair bit of noise too. In fact, you can often hear them running across the site, wearing away at all hours to supply a constant flow of power. But imagine if there was a way to reduce these emissions and remove all of that racket. Now I've heard of an energy source called green hydrogen. From what I gather, this technology has been around for some time. In this festival scenario, it's fuel cells that could offer a quieter solution. So why isn't it more common today? Not only empowering outdoor events, but in our cars or in more industrial applications too. Is there somewhere else across the globe that is embracing this technology? What might policy have to do with influencing the growth of green hydrogen? I'm George Amaphedon, and this is Create the Future. And today, we'll be speaking about the future of green hydrogen. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Michaela Kendall, CEO and co-founder of fuel cell pioneers, Adelan. Working with rapidly developing countries, you can see where these technologies really do have superior advantages over existing technologies. Also joining the conversation is Caroline Hargrove. She's the chief technical officer of Ceres Power, a company that develops clean energy technology, including fuel cells and electrolyzers, a device that you may have learned about in GCSE chemistry and uses electricity to split water molecules into hydrogen and oxygen. This company won the 2023 Mac Robert Award, which is a prestigious UK prize for engineering innovation. The balance is starting to tip, especially on the green hydrogen side. So we cannot wait. You know, we have to take more risk with the technology because we need a green hydrogen to decarbonize the big industrial applications. And to begin our conversation, Caroline outlined the work that the McRobert Award was recognizing and what it was like receiving the accolade. It's quite an honor because it's people recognizing that our technology is of use and there's a validation there by others. Essentially, what series is all about is trying to do the green electrons and turn it into hydrogen, green hydrogen, or vice versa using fuels like hydrogen and biofuels and others in producing electricity. Efficiency is king in here because obviously we're trying to replace fossil fuels. And the only way we can do this economically is through efficient technology. A lot of the work that we've done over the past 20 years has been to try to find a way of doing this using a technology that is I guess it's an extension of things that have already existed. So it's not like electrolyzers didn't exist or fuel cells didn't exist, but it was a slightly different class of them. 
what is innovative about the Ceres technology is that it's solid oxide technology. That means it's not a fluid in there. It's, it's a solid system. But previous solid oxide systems have run at very high temperature. We're talking 800, 1000 degrees C. And when you're running at such high temperature, it's not particularly easy to do this economically because you have to use very expensive materials. And the breakthrough for Ceres is to try to manage to do high temperature, but not quite so high. So run it at 600 degrees C. And then you can use a lot of technology that come from the automotive industry, like automotive gaskets and sealants and so on, and run it on steel, which is much cheaper than running on glass and it's much more robust. So that's the key innovation that we've done. So you keep the efficiency gain that you'd have when you're running at high temperature, but you have the robustness and the cost benefit of running at lower temperature. Even though it sounds high temperature, it's so much better because these kind of temperatures are actually much more common in things like the automotive industry. Thank you for that, Caroline. And some of our listeners today might not actually know what green hydrogen is. So Michaela, could you perhaps give people a bit of a hydrogen 101 and outline what green hydrogen actually is and why it is seen as a future fuel? So green hydrogen is almost the ultimate fuel because it's got no carbon in it. And if you generate hydrogen using renewables then there's no carbon associated with the generation as well so green hydrogen offers the lowest carbon footprint for a fuel but there are other fuels in the hydrogen economy and things like biofuels and also renewable fuels so fuels that you can produce from molecules and those are also alternatives to, to green hydrogen. Thank you for clearing that up. So I'm very curious, what got you interested in hydrogen when you started out and founded the company Adelan back in 1996? Yeah, so I started off as an environmental scientist. So I was really interested in clean air and I was studying the effects of air pollution on St. Paul's Cathedral here in London. And I was looking at the damage that particles and air pollution did to stone and I kept thinking what's that air pollution doing to my lungs as I'm cycling in and then I started to study that and, and look at the respirable particles the the particles that get into your lungs and realize that they don't really get out once they're in they stay and they do damage so I was looking for a solution to air pollution and fuel cells was was a really good but very new and just emerging technology at the time solar panels work perfectly but they weren't commercial and same for wind but fuel cells were a bit different because they used existing infrastructure fuels to generate power cleanly and also cheaply because they use less fuel. And for our listeners that might not be familiar with this technology, what exactly is a fuel cell? The fuel cell is a non-combustion generator. So if you think about diesel gensets or petrol generators that people have just to power things up, it might be on a car, it might be um, a portable generator for a stand on a, a stall on a marketplace. Those kind of generators can be replaced with a fuel cell because the fuel cell generates electricity, electrochemically, so not through combustion. It strips the electrons from the molecules in a clean way. So there's no air pollution that comes out. If it's using a hydrocarbon fuel, so some hydrogen technologies use hydrocarbon fuels, then it will generate some carbon. If it's using hydrogen, 
whatever the colour of hydrogen, it won't be producing carbon at the point of use. So you'll just have water coming out of the exhaust. And that's the dream, isn't it? That there's a very clean fuel and there's no pollution at the point of use. But there is carbon sometimes associated with generation of the fuel. So what we have now is a, is a range of colours that represent the carbon intensity of that fuel and the source of the hydrogen fuel. That's just a way we differentiate at the moment because there is some carbon associated with some generation techniques. Green hydrogen is the best kind because it's got no carbon associated with it. A lot of times when we discuss this technology, it can feel like something that's completely new or something that we've just started working on. But it's been around since the 50s and the 60s in many commercial applications. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that as well. Very few people know, but... Um, the Americans flew to the moon using a British fuel cell, which is such a brilliant story. And of course, Francis Bacon, who invented this technology when he was at Cambridge University, went on to really develop it in his shed, effectively. Mm. Uh, and Always starts like that, doesn't <laughs> exactly. it? Exactly. He couldn't get funded by government. People would say, that's a great technology, Francis, but what are you going to do with that? And what was the market? Ultimately, Pratt & Whitney went scouring the world for technologies to get them to the moon because they'd won the contract to power these space missions and they found Francis going down to the Royal Society showing off his technology and they licensed the patent and, and took him to America and put a thousand people on it and, and they flew to the moon. And I guess hydrogen is a fuel that we don't just see in space as you've spoken about but we also see on our roads as well and the story goes that you also have a hydrogen car. That's right, yeah. So we've got a couple of hydrogen cars in the family. My dad drives a hydrogen car as well. These cars work brilliantly well. The difficulty for us in the UK at the moment is access to hydrogen. So there is a similar infrastructure issue, just like with electric cars. If you don't have enough electric chargers or they're not working or the hydrogen in this case is not available, then it is difficult to access that fuel. There are hundreds of hydrogen cars in the UK, but there are very few hydrogen stations. And that's one of the problems to be solved. Availability of clean green hydrogen is a key issue. There are three at least big makers that make hydrogen cars and, and several smaller players as well, a couple in the UK. But then you, you look further scaling up in terms of size of vehicles than trucks. We just put a solid oxide fuel cell to power the auxiliary power on a train last week. We put a solid oxide fuel cell on a cherry picker last year. So these are both first of a kind. It takes time and it takes investment and nobody's 100% clear who's going to do it. The difficulties are there. You know, you can see it's going to take some effort and some time, but it is an inevitability, I think. Our applications has been very much into much more industrial settings, but also I think where we need it most is in long-haul transportation, where it will be difficult to set up or to have batteries that will be useful for such long distances. And that's where I think they come into their own and where it's difficult to do something other than, than using fuel cells. Well, when you look at big ships, whether it's a cruise ship, whether it's for moving goods around, one thing that is startling, especially if you've never looked at this, is the amount of energy required to move a big ship. The auxiliary power is the power to, to power everything on this ship that is not the big proportion to move it around. It's enormous. So we're talking about 800 megawatts just to be functioning. 
So it could be at port. It's not even moving. It needs a lot of power. It's mainly through electricity. And especially when you're going at port, the ports don't want you to have loads of emissions when you go and visit these beautiful spots around the world. So it needs to be cut down enormously. And one way of doing this is via fuel cells. The auxiliary power, that's harder because it has big engines that are basically built in at the time of building the, the ship. But a lot of the auxiliary power is something that can be retrofitted. And what we're advocating is you can retrofit through using fuel cells that can consume different types of fuel. So not necessarily just hydrogen, um, because hydrogen is not very compact as a gas, but you can consume something like ammonia, which doesn't have any carbon, which is not very good. But if it could be used as a hydrogen carrier, because it's much more dense for the hydrogen, and you can use that and remove the hydrogen essentially through your fuel cell, that's something that our type of fuel cell is good at doing, which means that you could run the hydrogen as an auxiliary power for powering all the electricity for a big, say, cruise ship. But you also need auxiliary power in the more industrial application of, of big movement of cargo ships, because you also need to often cool your cargo or run all the systems on the ship. Big ports like Singapore, for example, are making a big uh, move towards decarbonization and they are looking for alternative and fuel cells are, are part of the mix. So maritime is one industry, but there's another big industry that could benefit from switching to green hydrogen as well, which is steel. Steel is absolutely one of the big areas we need to concentrate on because to decarbonize, we will actually need more steel, like more steel to build big wind farms and so on. More than half the steel today is built in China. So even if we don't see it on our doorstep, it's there. It's a worldwide problem and we can't say it's someone else's problem. It's all our joint responsibility. Steelmaking uses a lot of heat and a lot of blast furnaces and so on that are enormous. So if we want to start decarbonizing this, we need to produce green hydrogen at scale. But steel is very hard to decarbonize because we can't just stop producing steel and swap big blast furnaces overnight. They're expensive, but they're in high demand. They work 24-7. And there are you know, new companies like in Scandinavia that are starting afresh and they say all they're going to make is green steel. And it's good. It will give a, an impetus for other steel companies that they have to do this. And it will happen over time, but it'll be a mixture in still it'll not suddenly all go green hydrogen. We do need to have a parallel ramping up on using those technology and probably hit the peak with using new investment and new ways of doing the green steel and ramp down the current way of using grey hydrogen, which is all coming from steam reforming, which is all fossil fuel based. It's not an easy problem to solve because of the scale, but at the same time, the scale justifies using these kind of technologies. So we move from the industry applications all the way to the human scale. You know, the things that we see day in and day out where hydrogen fuel cells are advantageous and particularly in remote or mountainous regions. So Michaela, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. I worked for the UN Hydrogen Centre in Istanbul for a few years and working with rapidly developing countries, you can see where these technologies really do have 
superior advantages over existing technologies, especially for remote areas where power is a problem or, or in a disaster relief operation where power's gone out or communications have gone down. And these are all applications that fuel cells are using already in a military setting. They could, should be also in humanitarian um, applications where they would play the same role, but they would actually be saving lives in those situations. In remote locations and in military episodes, getting the fuel to the front line is the most difficult bit. The less fuel you need, the better. And if you've got an efficient device, you need less fuel. It's really a very practical solution. And because it can work for hours, weeks, on a very small amount of transportable fuel, then that's a, a real solution initially for short-term use but then for longer-term use if you've got a green hydrogen generator then you can generate green hydrogen with our technology it's almost reversible so you can generate the green hydrogen running it one way and then use the green hydrogen when you actually need the power there are these technologies that offer really something that we've never had before which is this reversible energy system and there are criticisms because they're not as efficient as other uh, sources of power but it does different things you can't do this with any other technology and you see that in aerospace applications aviation is a really challenging uh, power application and you're seeing now a couple of different um, aviation companies that are using hydrogen to fly planes which is really exciting i mean it's still a very early stage but yeah in those types of applications And then I like the small applications. So the the parallel I would always give is that batteries and solar panels started small on Casio watches and calculators. That's how the supply chains built up, starting very small applications, but they were useful. So they made a market. And I think that fuel cells could also do that. They can scale down as well as up. So they can go to milliwatt applications like the calculators and watches or megawatt and gigawatt applications like the power stations and chemical industries so that's quite unique diesel engines for example don't scale down they have an optimum size even if you need a tiny amount of power you might have to have a big generator which is then really wasteful and you churn through a lot of fuel it's very expensive um, and you generate air pollution as well as the carbon These fuel cells, they eliminate the air pollution. They're very fuel efficient, so they're producing the same amount of power but producing less carbon as a result if you're using a hydrocarbon and no carbon if you're using green hydrogen. They're also running silent, so they're quiet. You can have them in motorhomes. We've got an application in in motorhomes where people require absolute silence (laughs) to sleep in these things. And that works. It's a very, very tiny noise, way better than a a diesel engine. Yeah, and I can definitely imagine that. And if we look at these hydrogen fuel cells, how could they be used in, in festivals? Let's take a place like Glastonbury, perhaps. The Birmingham Commonwealth Games last year, we were the only company that supplied hydrogen technologies and hydrogen fuel into the games to be used, you know, just as a replacement for different items. The challenge there is that at the moment, these generators are smaller. Glastonbury is a small town coming together. You know, it's 200,000 people. That kind of scale of event is probably maybe not beyond us, but it would take a lot of planning. Smaller events, we're seeing that already, that friends of mine in Scotland, Plus Zero is a company that's that's working on festival power. 
the smaller festivals, green hydrogen can power them now. We're actually exploring different options and and that's a really exciting use of power because people want that. We're finding that the demand is there. People want to have the minimum impact on the environment. It's a feel-good factor to know that the event is going to be run on, on green hydrogen and minimal I mean, if you eliminate air pollution in a city or a setting like that, if you eliminate noise, great. And then and then to be carbon free at the point of emission, then it's what people want. So I think we'll see a lot more of that coming up. I mean, all of these sound great. So what would you say is the main barrier stopping us from embracing this green hydrogen and these hydrogen fuel cells? Because they've both been around for so long. What are some of the challenges that you would say we have at the moment? Really, we've been limited by imagination and also access to funding potentially, but also people interested in it, knowing about it. Awareness is really important and education is key. Getting more people into this so that they understand that this is an option. And the more people that understand it, they think, well, why hasn't it happened already? But I think the more people understand and and look into it, the faster it will go. People want to commit to producing the hydrogen, but we also need committed off-takers for this hydrogen and the infrastructure. And because there's a number of players, there's a little bit of a dance when you're talking to do things at scale that needs to be encouraged to to resolve. As Michaela said, there, there is a willpower to do things, but we still need to show that this is fine. It can be done. It can be done economically if the scale is there and if we are backing it. That requires an amount of willingness for people to take some risks because it's a new technology. It's new in a sense of new to scale, new to do something in big. We can do this at small scale, but we can't leave it there. One of the things that fuel cells have suffered is how do you build them at scale economically? It needs to be able to use materials that are not very rare and very expensive. It needs to be able to be recyclable. It needs to be able to manufacture it at scale And all of this is a new market in an area that you need to build factories to be able to bring the costs to an economic level. All of that takes time. So we haven't seen it yet. We have to build that market. But I would say that right now we need some of these applications more urgently than ever. The balance is starting to tip, especially on the green hydrogen side. So we cannot wait. You know, we have to take more risk with the technology because we need a green hydrogen to decarbonize the big industrial applications. What we need is is a, a measure of risk that is balanced so that as these technologies evolve, they'll become more robust and they'll last longer. But we need to take some risk and start putting them into systems and commit to those systems. And that requires a lot of the ecosystem to build around it. And it needs some policies, governments to help support this transition, doing things like putting timelines for how late grey hydrogen should be phased out, something that we don't hear about. But we need these incentives. Having those deadlines are crucial. It drives investment. It drives technology changes. It drives change, period. We need timelines to work to. This is how we are as an economy. If we don't have to change, it's normally cheaper not to. But if there are constraints and penalties, if you don't change, then that drives that momentum. And Michaela, I know you also have a lot to say when it comes to the policy side of the discussion. And that is very important. 
you know, to get that support from the UK and the government, what would that kind of support look like for you? It always sounds so complicated, doesn't it? And, but it's actually re- really quite simple. I think Caroline's right. You need the political will. You need the decision. Is this a, a direction that we want to explore? And, and I think everybody around the world now is, is unified in understanding that green hydrogen and the technology, so hydrogen technologies, will be part of our energy portfolio. There's almost nobody really questioning that. It's already there in, on an industrial scale anyway. It's going to be part of our future. The question is, how much will it take up? How much will it account for of our energy system? And that's a little bit of an unknown, but the only way you can really test it is by giving it strong policy supports. We know that environmental policies around the world, they make the difference between a good environment and a bad environment. Mm -hmm. And you can improve environmental conditions with policy. Good energy policy really needs to account for carbon more than anything. We have to really make a decision whether this is something we want to go for in the, in the UK. In terms of the capacity building for hydrogen fuel, I think there has been a decision that it is going to be part of the future and there's been some commitment. But for hydrogen technologies, for example, there's really not much funding at all. Uh, very small amounts of money at the moment go into hydrogen technologies. It's unknown how they will roll out and whether the UK will be a big player in that. But that strong national policy is key. We see in places like China, in Korea, uh, in Germany, in Japan, you can see very strong policies and most recently in America. So the USA has brought in the Inflation Reduction Act. They want to be self-sustaining in terms of the energy and hydrogen and, and hydrogen technologies are a key part of that. They're investing $8 billion into a series of hydrogen hubs around the US. And those hubs will develop the, and scale up these technologies and, and capabilities to supply hydrogen and specifically green hydrogen. Australia, America, China, they've all got hydrogen hubs. And in Europe, we have hydrogen valleys. And then it's looking at how do you fund this? How do you finance it? And and that's a key question because the technology challenges, many of them are already solved. They're proven. The business models, the commercial challenges, they're not solved yet, but they are evolving. And, and it's easy to see where these technologies and this fuel is being successful. But the third thing is the financing. If we continue to finance things in the way we always have done, we finance the same people to do the same things. We're going to get the same outcomes. And that, to me, is where the innovation is needed. So policy really needs to be stimulating that investment approach. And Caroline, in terms of where you see inspiration in the world at the moment, what countries are taking the most strides to make this technology actually viable? Different countries have different approaches to this and different motivation. Certainly, we see a willingness to do things in Asia, often because they are big industrial nations. Their pressing needs are for decarbonizing industry. They're huge. And a lot of them don't have other sources of energy. You know, they won't have oil as a driver. So to move away from that is easier. So Japan is a big fuel cell investor and, and so is Korea. Increasingly, China and India, they're countries who have sun and can convert into green electrons and produce green hydrogen. If you think about a lot of um, countries like Morocco, who actually produce a lot of the fertilizers because there's a big agricultural area, they need to decarbonize the ammonia process in there to produce the hydrogen that goes into this. So I like the fact that they're thinking 
right, actually, we could produce the hydrogen locally in Morocco and then export that more broadly, etc. So sometimes instead of thinking, I'll produce green hydrogen and move it around the world, sometimes it's better to think, can it be produced locally next to where it will be most useful to use? And these are big areas. I like seeing that a lot of these countries are, are embracing these connections and forming those ecosystems. Different regions around the world have approached this differently for their own geographical or geopolitical reasons. When we first started out in 96, it was very regionalised interest. The US had quite a big fuel cell programme, but nowhere else did. It was very much directed towards American interests, if you like, and, and that regional interest. Around the year 2000, that subsided. But Japan was always very dedicated to this kind of efficiency and uh, wanted to reduce their imports of fuel. They were looking to have a kind of minimal impact in terms of carbon and air pollution. So they had that kind of approach. So they continued the sort of technical development. China and Europe both came online because they started getting interested for different reasons. China, again, they didn't want to import fuel and they wanted to own technology as well. And Europe was much more interested in the carbon. You know, they really want a, a zero carbon, net zero future. These different regions kind of lit up around the world at different times. But what we see now is every region is in a race. A lot of our listeners on this podcast are actually young people and they're thinking about cleaner ways of doing everything. And we'd love to kind of get your perspective on where you think young people fit into this whole conversation and how we can empower them to be in this industry. So Michaela, over to you. Yeah, so we had a, a great experience recently with the Manufacturing Technology Centre. Uh, we've got a project with the MTC based in Coventry. The lead partner asked the team, and there's about 800 engineers there, if anybody wants to join the project. And of course, all the young engineers really want to w work on this technology because it's their future. They can see a whole career in this. These devices are new. There's all that open space for engineers and scientists. Open space is, you know, that's the promised land. You want to be out there and, and inventing things and making your contribution. So I, th I think young people can see they could spend a whole career in that. Whereas with combustion technologies, they're kind of edging away from it. Maybe it's not going to be there for their whole career. I would agree wholeheartedly with you. And I remember when I was a student at university, I was passionate about doing something other than the combustion engines that we had already been doing for so many years. And lo and behold, a few years later, we started working on electric powertrains. So I think it's gradually shifting and maybe none of the students that join, you know, the university in the coming years will ever see combustion or that kind of powertrain and, and be able to work on them. Perhaps hydrogen or green hydrogen is probably up next. And on to you, Caroline, in terms of Ceres power and everything that you're looking to do, you know, in the future, I'll be keen to kind of get your reflections in terms of the exciting questions that are still yet to be answered and how does this actually motivate engineers on the ground on a day-to-day -day basis? The motivation is easy to get because it covers such a breadth of areas. We have scientists working at nanoscale and developing materials with improved properties. And then we have to build the cells. Then we have to make the stacks. And as stacks go into systems, we need skill sets across the board. 
So it is not many skill sets of engineering that we don't need. And therefore, I think it's really fascinating to um, work in an industry like this that requires so many different skills coming together. It's super motivating and we have a, a mission that brings everyone together. As Michaela said, we also need to have an environment in which you feel that there is a future for these technologies. So we're plowing on ahead, but we have to work in an ecosystem and work alongside others because technology is only one small step in all of this. The technology needs to exist, but by itself, it's not a solution. It's part of the solution. And that's where we, we have to work in concert with our leaders politically and from corporates. We need to invest in this. We need our financing to support these big investments and, and give confidence. We need all of those items to come together. Michaela, we're talking about the future of green hydrogen. So I'd be keen to know what would your aspirations be over the next five, maybe 10 years in terms of things that you would like to see with this fuel and the technology? I think every household will have a fuel cell of one kind or another. So there was quite a pivotal moment for me about 10 years ago when a UK fuel cell company put the first fuel cell on the high street. So they were selling fuel cells out of the Apple shop in Birmingham. It's that kind of thing that I think will happen more and more. We can see cars now on the road. You can see in London, there's quite a few hydrogen buses. Same in Birmingham, same in Scotland, around Liverpool. You know, you're just starting to see these things come in. But I think more in households as well, we'll see it. Fuel cells will probably follow the distributed model like renewables did, which is, you know, people will have little portable generators or they'll have them for their own reasons. It might be to power their garden office. It might be to power their mobile home just as a backup generator for their EV, their electric vehicle, things that we haven't probably even thought of yet where they'll crop up. But I think everybody will become more familiar with the technology over time. I can see international collaboration already to these natural networks of technologists and scientists and engineers working in this space. I can see that they're really pushing this agenda and they're quite often ahead of policymakers. It would be great if policy were more engaged with the engineering world and, and able to sort of see the opportunities coming before they, they emerge. That kind of international collaboration working really well. I really hope that we can get more engineers and policy-making positions, to be fair, because I think that's what we actually need, or at least more collaboration in order to be there. Michaela Kendall, Caroline Hargrove, thank you both so much for joining me today. It was great speaking with Michaela and Caroline today, and what stood out to me is how much of this tech is already available but needs that extra push and scaling up to truly become viable and economic right now. It also opened my eyes to see how much government policy can drive industrial shifts and how unless there's pressure to change, we may lag behind and not truly capitalise on the opportunities right in front of us. My hope is that young people will be inspired after this conversation to consider how they can work on these future fuels like green hydrogen, and maybe the next time that I go to a festival and shake a leg, that will be powered by a fuel cell. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Cram. This episode was presented by me, George Maffedon, 
and was produced by May Lee Evans. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists, and thinkers. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.